Welcome to How to Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. The book How to Be Sad is out now in the US and the UK, so as a thank you for all the support so far and a sneak preview for the How to Be Sad Curious, we are bringing you today an extract from the audiobook read by me. It's a section from the start of the book about the first rule of Sad Club. Don't fight it. Welcome to How to Be Sad. It's 1983, it's raining, and Phil Collins' You Can't Hurry Love is playing on the radio. I won't know what irony is for at least 15 years, but this already seems cruel, because it turns out you can't slow love down either. I'm on the sofa playing with my blue-haired doll when I hear the familiar squeak of hand on banister. It is my dad, and he's carrying a suitcase. He's wearing flared trousers and a shirt with sleeves rolled up to his elbows, despite the fact that it's January. His hair is long, spilling over the edge of his collar, and it's brown. It's the early 80s, so most things are brown. The clothes, the decor, my hair and that of my parents. I am three years old and it's only been three months since a very sad thing happened to our family, on the 31st of October 1982. Halloween, in fact. A day that changed all of us, but that will remain unspoken of for years to come. My dad's eyes used to crinkle when he smiled and my mum used to be chatty. But now my dad doesn't smile and my mum doesn't chat. Nothing has been right since the very sad thing happened. And now my dad is leaving. He's back after a few days the following weekend, but he doesn't stay the night. I know it's the weekend as I'm being allowed to watch TV in my pyjamas after breakfast, rather than having my hair and teeth brushed immediately afterwards. This is strange. What's stranger still is that when my paternal grandparents visit, no one mentions the lack of sleepovers. You haven't told them? I hear my mum whisper to my father in the kitchen. Told them what? My dad starts picking me up every Saturday and driving me to either the nearest pub or to the Harvester, a popular chain of family-friendly eateries in the days when a gastropub was a mere glint in the foetus of Tom Kerridge's eye. If we frequent the Harvester, I'm asked, have you ever been to the Harvester before? by someone dressed as Aunt Sally from Wurzel Gummidge. I eat a lot of sweet corn from the salad bar, then stuff my face with ice cream for afters. If it's the pub, we wait until opening time and then sit outside on a bench under a carling black label fringed umbrella. My dad has a pint of lager and I have a white bread ham sandwich with a packet of salt and vinegar crisps. My dad has started wearing a leather jacket that smells equally of smoke and bloke and now drives a convertible Golf GTI. This would probably be termed a midlife crisis for most men, but my dad is only 27, so perhaps it's just a crisis. I don't much like the convertible Golf GTI because having the roof down makes my hair blow about until I can't see and then get car sick and vomit. This makes the car smell so bad that having the roof down becomes a necessity, otherwise my dad will vomit too. Nausea is fast becoming a constant. These outings are fine. But soon our weekly lunchtime jaunts morph into monthly overnight expeditions. My dad is staying in a tower block in London with his new girlfriend, her sister and her teenage son. There isn't really room for all of us so I share a bunk bed with the 14-year-old boy. Sunday mornings now start with a teenage boy swinging his legs down from the top bunk and scratching his behind through boxer shorts. It's confusing and it doesn't smell great, but then nothing seems to smell great anymore. My mum and I move house to be closer to my grandmother, a formidable woman who looks like a cross between the Queen and Margaret Thatcher. 
I start kindergarten in the September while my mother goes back to work. No one tells the school what has been happening in our family until my mother is confronted with a picture I have drawn that my teacher is particularly pleased with. A drawing of my mum, my dad, my baby sister and me. My mum turns white at this and has to explain to the teacher that my baby sister is no longer with us and that my dad isn't coming back either. I am baffled by this. Dad gone too? To cheer us up after this upsetting incident, we decide that it is my blue-haired doll's birthday and my mum bakes her a cake. I have little appetite but stuff it down regardless. I turn out to be pretty good at this. Food is a way of showing love. And who can be sad eating cake? Sadness can also, I learn, be resisted or at least rescheduled by eating biscuits, white bread and cereal straight from the packet. All hail carbohydrates. My dad and his new girlfriend want a place of their own to live, but they haven't got enough money to do this, what with me to pay for as well, and so my dad becomes stressed. He also becomes forgetful. Pigtailed, wide-eyed, aged five, I remember waiting. Sitting on the beige-carpeted bottom step of my mother's new semi-detached with a packed suitcase by my side. Toothbrush, pyjamas, two changes of underwear, just in case, my favourite purple jumper and brown corduroy trousers the 1980s. These have been stowed away with care, but the blue-haired doll has been left out for air and is held tight in my arms. The clock shows both hands pointing upwards right at the top. This is the time my mum said that my dad would come. I have been good, so he will come. He has to come. So I wait. And then I wait some more. Minutes tick by, audibly, until the big hand on the clock points towards the floor. The clock is now making an altogether different shape to the one my mother and I have drawn together on pieces of paper to practice. My mother's voice becomes slightly higher as she assures me, everything's fine, over and over. She alternates between checking the street for signs of life, trying the telephone and even, unusually, offering the option of cartoons. But I will not be moved. I sit, eyes trained on the front door, for three hours. He does not come. When my baby sister was here, my dad did not forget things, and life was okay. Now it's just me, my dad is increasingly forgetful, and life is very much not okay. This confirms a new, niggling fear that has begun to develop. That it would probably have been better if I'd gone instead, and it's all my fault that dad left. I'm not special. Preschoolers typically believe that they're responsible for their parents' separation. What you have there is a case of childhood omnipotence. U.S. psychologist Aphrodite Matsakis tells me three decades later, this is a well-documented tendency of some children and some adults to think that the world revolves around them and that they control everything that happens in it. Some young children have trouble seeing things from others' point of view and tend to think that they're the centre of everything, as well as the cause of everything. They often think that if they wish something, it might come true. It's an exaggerated sense of responsibility based on the belief that I personally have the duty and power to save loved ones in trouble. No one tells me otherwise. No one tells me much at all. So I make it up. If we don't tell them the truth, children do make it up, says Jane Elfer, a child and adolescent psychotherapist who works in a large London hospital. They invent their own version of what's happened, their own reality or faulty ideas. Often, what children imagine is even worse than what's actually occurred, she says. So from a really young age, we need clear, concrete and specific communication to avoid misunderstandings. 
We have to get better at unhappiness as a society. If something sad has happened, you need to allow and accept this. We do not accept it. We fight it. Ignore it, even. The paperwork comes through and my parents are officially divorced. Despite the commonly held myth that most couples split up after the death of a child, around 72% of parents who are married at the time of their child's death remain married to the same person. It is doubtless insanely painful, and cracks in a relationship turn to chasms under pressure. But this doesn't necessarily mean that we or our relationships are broken, although it may feel that way. The latest figures from the UK's Office for National Statistics estimate that 42% of all marriages in England and Wales end in divorce. So bereaved couples are actually more likely to stay together, and one loss doesn't necessarily have to lead to another. Grief is the price we pay for love. But if we're not prepared for this, and we've been raised to demand happiness, or at least a numbing out of pain at every turn, we are less able to ride out the storm. If we expect too much of ourselves and our relationships after a loss, we will be disappointed. I fully understand the impulse to run for the hills in an attempt to escape sadness and pain. Most of us have been raised on running for the hills. No judgment towards anyone whose longest relationship to date is with the hills. Really, I get it. I heart hills. People do daft things. Neither of my parents were saints. And divorce is often the best course of action for both parties, but it's worthwhile to remember that there is another way. When we're experiencing loss, from low-level sadness to the catastrophic, life-changing kind, we will feel bad. That's normal. If we learned to accept that things were going to be hard, we might be better equipped to endure periods of extreme sadness. Something I wish someone had told my family in the 1980s. But they don't because no one tells each other anything. Instead, I join the esteemed legions of men and women worldwide with daddy issues. I grew up with a single parent who does the work of two, a woman who, fortunately for me, is extraordinary in her strength and resilience. There are some pros to being the child of a single mother. I will grow up blissfully ignorant of the gendered nature of many domestic tasks, since in my house, what needs to be done gets done by her. I will become, like my mother, excellent in a crisis. I will value independence, although, unfortunately, to the extent that I will become hooked on the stuff, wary of commitment or going all in with anyone. I've seen where that can get you. I will insist on room to breathe in every relationship I'll ever have. I will struggle to negotiate. There was no need in our house, since one person made all the decisions. And I will see how keeping busy is a way to keep going, to fight the pain ish. The world already makes no sense to me, so I make sense of it myself. I'm told regularly not to be sad and not to cry, so I don't. No one does. Until the urge to cry or feel sad becomes strangely unfamiliar. Alien, even. The late psychologist Haim Jinnot wrote in Between Parent and Child that many people have been educated out of knowing what their feelings are. When they hated, they were told it was only dislike. When they were afraid, they were told there was nothing to be afraid of. When they felt pain, they were advised to be brave and smile. Children look to parents for how to regulate their own emotions because they don't yet know how to do it themselves. But if caregivers don't know either or were never taught because the bad feelings were anaesthetized away, then we're really in trouble. 
and trying to fight sad is something many of us are taught from birth. A Guardian article from 2019 reported that our society is teaching us not to be sad from day one. The first thing that most infants taste in the UK after milk is Calpol, the sweet purple painkiller administered in handy oral syringes that make parents feel a lot like cowboys in a western. The NHS advises parents to give babies liquid paracetamol after their first vaccinations at eight weeks to prevent possible discomfort. And 84% of babies will have been given Calpol by the time they're six months old. A Calpol ad when I was growing up read, when the family go on holiday, don't take the risk of aches and pains. The message was clear. Being a good caregiver meant never allowing your children to suffer, no matter what the reason for this might be. We live in a culture where distress demands to be alleviated and sadness is supposed to be solved rather than experienced. So we're less able to tolerate it than previous generations. A 2018 BBC documentary reported that UK kids are being given three times as many drugs as they were 40 years ago. With most things in our life these days, if we have a problem, we expect technology or medicine to fix us says the psychotherapist and grief expert Julia Samuel, MBE. But sadness doesn't work like this. Our parents try to immunise us against it from a young age. We are mollycoddled. Often, we are not taught to experience a little bit of pain so that we can learn how to deal with big pain. We try to fight it, to lessen discomfort as a society, almost on autopilot. Only by doing so, we're all worse off, says Professor Nathaniel Herr from American University in Washington, D.C an expert in emotional regulation. Sadness is really important, he tells me over Skype. People need to recognise it and what it provides. I have people saying to me, I just don't want to feel anxious anymore. I don't want to feel sad. And I have to say to them, I can't help you with that because you shouldn't want not to feel sad. This is something that even her psychology students have a tough time getting their heads around. If I ask them, why do we have sadness? Most will say something like, well, we couldn't have happiness if we didn't have sadness. It's like light and shade. But that's not it. They're ignoring the function that sadness has socially. It sends out a signal like, hey, come help me, to make other people rally around. Her also takes the view that we're often sad when we're stuck somehow and don't know how to get ourselves out of a situation. Which makes sadness profoundly useful. Sadness is a problem-solving type of emotion, he says. It produces rumination. I see rumination as the cognitive manifestation of the emotion sadness, just like worry is the cognitive manifestation of the emotion anxiety. So sadness is an emotion that's important for making us stop and consider where we are before we can move on to the next stage in life. This is an idea originally flung round by the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard, He argued that sadness and despair were not only bliss-inducing and inevitable, they were also necessary for change. I visit the Kierkegaard expert and psychology professor Henrik Ho Olsen at Aarhus University in Denmark. A white-trousered man in his 60s, Ho Olsen tells me, Kierkegaard is all about despair, and we need despair. When you feel that sadness or emptiness or anxiety, that existential feeling that makes you stop and wonder, That's an opportunity to make a change in life and row your boat against the stream. Tide, I ask? Stream, he asserts. 
Psychologist plus lecturer plus expert in a notoriously tricky 19th century philosopher proves to be a uniquely authoritarian combination, so I don't quibble. You need these heavy feelings to help you navigate life. He thumps a tanned wrist on his desk. Sitting under ceiling tiles, surrounded by pot plants, I'm transported back to my own student days and a late essay dressing down in a professor's office circa 1998, experiencing a sense of deja vu. Sadness and despair give you purpose. We should be guided by these feelings to think, what am I doing with my life? I feel small and wonder what, indeed, I am doing with my life. And uh, what happens if we don't let ourselves be guided by despair? Then you're a robot, just a robot who eats, sleeps and excretes. Right, good. So despair is necessary for change and sadness is necessary for life, otherwise we're all just shitting robots. Got it. So we need to stop fighting these negative emotions and start feeling them, because if we don't, the consequences can be dire. If we don't accept and process sadness, it can manifest physically, warns the child and adolescent psychotherapist Jane Alpha. She explains that illness, actual, real, calpol necessitating illness, may be the only way a child can express their feelings. They will have unexplained tummy aches or headaches, for example. And then, of course, there's the psychological impact, she says, especially when it comes to loss. My gut becomes a barometer of my mental state as a child, but I have a lot of trouble identifying whether my tensed-up innards are down to hunger, tiredness, stress or sorrow. Since eating is a quicker fix than overcoming stress or sorrow, or power napping, I usually feed the tightening cords in my stomach as a first response, just in case. This is fairly common. The late psychoanalyst Joyce McDougall wrote about how grief can manifest via loss of appetite or an increase in appetite in an attempt to fill the void. Little children don't always know which bit of them is hurting, at least not before they're around 10 years old, says Ross Cormack, psychotherapist and lead practitioner at Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. And sadness is often felt in the stomach. Sad children also tend to be more panicky and live on cortisol, the stress hormone and adrenaline, putting them in a constant state of fight or flight. Food can do a passable job of dampening this down and subduing us, but it's a short-sighted solution. And I say this as someone who once ate a whole loaf of white bread, just to check. It's only a fix until the next wave of feelings that need processing. Other common physical symptoms of grief include a tightness of the chest or throat, oversensitivity to noise, difficulty breathing, feeling very tired and weak, a dry mouth, an increase or decrease in appetite, difficulty or fear of sleeping, as well as aches and pains. A 2014 study even found that older adults experiencing grief are less likely to produce some types of white blood cells, leaving them more prone to infections. Unresolved grief is said to cause 15% of all psychological disorders, according to Julia Samuel in her book Grief Works. Samuel also notes that bereaved children are more susceptible to addiction and mental health problems in later life if they haven't properly dealt with their emotions. Those of us who struggle to regulate our emotions, Professor Herr explains, usually experience this in three ways. The first is in terms of sensitivity to cues, getting the emotions sooner than others might. The second is intensity, getting the emotions at a more intense level. And the third is taking longer to return to a baseline or normal. It's up to adults, says Professor Herr, 
parents usually, to give appropriate feedback to children so that they learn this in childhood. So if a kid says, I'm sad, and a parent says, no, you're fine, that wouldn't be helpful. Parents need to accept the emotion that a child is having and help the child to label it for the child to learn to identify that emotion, handle it, and not feel shame or confusion about it. Because, he says, every emotion is useful in its place. If we just learnt to accept and tolerate a full range of emotions to start with, especially the negative ones, we'd all be better off. Professor Herr is from America and so knows whereof he speaks. Because researchers have found that culturally, Americans are outliers in terms of their desire to minimise negative emotions. Psychologist Jeannie Tsai from Stanford University's Culture and Emotion Laboratory has found that an obsession with the pursuit of happiness has led many Americans to view sadness as a failure and something that is the individual's responsibility. As the daughter of Taiwanese immigrants raised in the US, Tsai became interested in how American attitudes differed from those typically found in East Asian cultures. In the US, I observed a real emphasis on wanting to feel happiness and avoid sadness at all costs, far more so than in other countries, she tells me when I get in touch. In East Asia, by contrast, the concept of negative feelings is rooted in Buddhist, Taoist and Confucian traditions and viewed as situationally based or circumstantial. This means that individuals don't bear the weight of their negative experiences alone. And negative feelings or experiences can even foster social ties in East Asian culture, says Sai. In East Asia, negative emotions are seen as inevitable and transient elements of a natural cycle, or part of life, rather than something to be feared as a risk to our mental or even physical health. We've all seen studies saying happy people are healthier, and we certainly spend enough time and money trying to be happy in the West. I used to believe in this myself. I spent years devouring and dutifully repeating research that proved happier people were healthier, ergo we should strive for happiness at all costs. But this isn't the whole story. Because in cultures where being sad is seen as okay, sadness has been shown to have far less of a negative impact on health. Researchers have analysed the differences in approach to negative feelings and health in Japan and the US, a good comparison because both are modernised, democratised, industrialised societies with well-developed systems of healthcare, says Sai. But these societies have very different ideas about negative emotions. As one Japanese psychiatrist told the Association for Psychological Science, melancholia, sensitivity, fragility, these are not negative things in a Japanese context. It never occurred to us that we should try to remove them, because it never occurred to us that they were bad. Unlike in the US, where sad is empirically viewed as bad. And it's this perception of sadness that can make us sick. In the US, lower positive emotions are linked with higher BMI and less healthy blood lipid profiles, important indicators of health. But in Japan, studies show that people with lower positive emotions are pretty much fine. So emotions have a different impact on our health, depending on our culture. And being sad only makes us sick if we are terrified of being sad. Another study from the University of California, Berkeley, found that people who accept rather than judge their mental experiences have better health outcomes. Those who avoided their negative feelings or judged themselves harshly for feeling bad were more likely to report mood disorders and distress. 
Because if we view sadness as something wrong or even abnormal, we are more prone to pathologize it. In The Loss of Sadness, How Psychiatry Transformed Normal Sorrow into Depressive Disorder, the title says it all, sociology professors Alan V. Horwitz and Jerome C. Wakefield argue that the massive rise in depression in recent years has less to do with the pressures of modern life and more to do with overdiagnosis. The medical historian Edward Shorter argues that psychiatry's love affair with the diagnosis of depression has become a death grip, asserting that most patients who get the diagnosis of depression are also anxious, fatigued, unable to sleep and have all kinds of physical symptoms. Horwitz, Wakefield, Shorter and others suspect that many of us are being diagnosed as depressed when we are in fact sad, a direct result of a dodgy definition in a single, albeit significant, book. The American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders the DSM, is a weighty tome used to diagnose all things mind-related in the US. The first edition was published in 1952 in an attempt to unify mental health approaches in the US. But when it came to major depressive disorders, the DSM focused on symptoms rather than context. This meant that the distinction between actual medical issue and ordinary sorrow was done away with. Anyone exhibiting five or more symptoms for two weeks could be diagnosed with clinical depression, even if their low mood, decreased appetite or poor sleep, etc. had a thoroughly understandable explanation, such as heartbreak or financial worries. Earlier editions of the DSM included a grief clause stating that people couldn't be diagnosed with depression within two months of bereavement. But the latest version, published in 2013, DSM-5, scrapped this, doing away with the distinction between understandable sadness and medical condition. Supporters of DSM-5's decision argue that grief is a common precursor of depression, and given the serious risks of unrecognised major depression, removing the bereavement exclusion was a reasonable decision. But it also means that responses to grief can now be labelled as pathological disorders, rather than being recognised as normal human experiences. Psychologists in the UK and Europe are supposed to use the World Health Organization's International Classification of Diseases, the ICD, as a reference. But the DSM remains enormously influential, and many European practitioners turn to it for diagnosis. So now we're all taking a leaf out of the American mental health playbook. A problem, since Americans really don't like to be sad, as Sai puts it. A proclivity she puts down to frontier values. The first settlers from Europe were a self-selecting, intrepid group, says Sai. People who anticipated positive outcomes, were willing to take risks, and who handled negative feelings or situations by leaving them, in the hope of something better. For early pioneers, overcoming hardship was seen as a virtue, whereas wallowing in adverse circumstances was not. Consequently, the American approach to mental health today tends to be fervently forward-facing. One of the most popular modes of treatment is cognitive behavioural therapy, CBT, a forward-facing, back-on-your-feet initiative that seeks to change negative patterns of thinking. Many of CBT's pioneers came from the US, and whereas European psychologists are frequently influenced by Freud's blame-your-father backwards-facing stance, America tends to prefer the promise of a sorrow-free tomorrow. Only seeing sadness as transgressive 
a problem to be medicated away, leaves us poorly equipped to manage the next time it comes calling. Pathologizing sadness sends a message that discomfort cannot and should not be tolerated. Post-Princess Diana, we may be officially on board with public displays of emotion in the UK, more in Chapter 11, and we're certainly inundated with reality shows that end with a Josh Groban soundtrack montage of sobbing. But proper, in-real-life crying? Without embarrassment or fear of ridicule? Not so much. Which is daft, because sadness is normal, and tears are too. We've always cried. We're meant to cry. Crying is a way to elicit support from others during times of distress, says Ad Vingerhoots, the tear professor from Tilburg University in the Netherlands. Humans are the only creatures known to shed emotional tears, and infants cry to get the attention of their parents, while an adult might cry to get the sympathy of a friend or loved ones. Scientists used to think that we got rid of toxins and stress hormones via tears, and that the act of crying also produced endorphins and the feel-good chemical oxytocin. But there's no change in our pain threshold after crying, which you'd expect with an increase in endorphins and oxytocin, says Fingerhoots. And saliva contains stress hormones too. But who feels better after a good drool, he asks me. No one, I hazard. Exactly. Wingerhutz and his colleagues found that cortisol levels do decrease in those who cry, but that similar effects are observed in baby monkeys separated from their mothers who emit distress calls. So we don't feel better because we're sluicing out toxins. We feel better because expressing sadness soothes us. Psychologist Cord Beneck from the University of Kassel in Germany studied criers versus non-criers and found that criers experienced fewer negative aggressive feelings like rage and disgust than people who didn't cry. We now know that crying is something all humans are programmed to do and that tears serve a purpose, says Wingerhutz. Charles Darwin famously denied the usefulness of tears, so I see my work as a personal challenge to prove him wrong. Fair enough. And here I hesitate, lest the sisterhood strike me down. Do women really cry more? A little, he admits. Testosterone has been proven to inhibit crying, and prolactin, the hormone best known for its role in lactation, also lowers the threshold at which we're moved to tears. But the messages we get from our peers about crying are also hugely significant, he adds. We see from research that 10 to 13-year-old boys, for example, face a strong pressure not to cry, whereas 10 to 13-year-old girls don't. It is more socially accepted for girls to cry. Both men and women have been proven to cry around the same amount over the big stuff like death or divorce. But women cry slightly more over other things, he says. I press him and he tells me that the core feeling of tears isn't actually sadness, it's helplessness. So we see that women are more likely to weep out of frustration or around conflict because they feel powerless and struggle to express their anger. Even crying when you're scared is to do with helplessness, he tells me. If you're fearful but you know how to escape the saber-toothed tiger, for example, then you can display your fight-or-flight impulses. But if you're trapped, you're more likely to cry out of a feeling of powerlessness. I tell him this theory doesn't sound great for women. He reminds me that it's not a blast for men either. Boys as young as ten are learning that crying isn't acceptable, says Wingerhutz. So by the time they reach adulthood, it's no wonder many men are reluctant to be seen crying. 
There is, however, one domain in which men have traditionally been allowed to cry. From the footballer Gaza's tears at Italia 90 to Michael Jordan sobbing during his Basketball Hall of Fame speech and Andy Murray weeping as he announced retirement from tennis in January 2019, sports-related crying has long been deemed okay. There's something almost heroic about crying on the pitch, says Case, a professional footballer friend I quiz about this over wine in my garden one weekend. He tells me about an important game in Prague where his team lost and all started crying. It's sort of accepted to cry over failure in football, he explains. It's allowed. And also you just do it naturally. You're doing a week's worth of training for 90 minutes on the pitch. So when it goes wrong, he clutches his chest. It's heartbreaking. I look sceptical at this. I know nothing about football. Okay, so you can't compare it to losing friends or family, he says. No. But it's close. Despite heroic tears, discussions about emotions and mental health have still been frowned upon in football until recently. Coaches are now telling us to talk more, says Case, that it's important to expose our vulnerabilities so we can bond as a team. People are starting to realise that being more in touch with emotions and being honest will improve the game, as well as the players and football in general. A study from Indiana University Bloomington, published in The Psychology of Men and Masculinity, top of the pile on any self-respecting nightstand, found that American footballers who cried reported higher levels of self-esteem and were less concerned about peer pressure than their non-crying counterparts. And male weepers have some pretty prominent role models too. Greek heroes Achilles and Odysseus liked to sob. Jesus literally wept. So we should all cry when we need to. The first lesson of how to be sad is just to stop fighting it. That's it. That's all we need to do to begin with. Even when it's serious and we still have to get out of bed or care for others, fighting sadness or pretending it isn't there is not the answer. We have to feel it. Something that sounds deceptively simple but can feel like a radical act since sadness is one of the least visible parts of everyday life. We have to get back in touch with our emotions so that we can deal with them. Thank you so much for listening. If your appetite has been whetted, the How To Be Sad book is out now wherever you get your books, ebooks, and audiobooks. We'll be back with a normal episode of the podcast very soon. And if you like what you hear, please do consider giving us a review. It really does help other people find us.